This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 103. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 103 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Good to be back with you. Got a great show for you, as usual. I have on today Mr. Pat Patton from Jam Good Mastering in LaGrange, Georgia. Not to be confused with LaGrange, Texas, as mentioned in the ZZ Top song, but LaGrange, Georgia. Looks like a fantastic place to live, and that's where Pat has lived for a number of years. Pat is one of these guys that we don't all know about. And one of the compliments I do get on the show from people is they say, you know, I love, you know, hearing from the more popular people that you have on, but it's really great when we can hear from those in the trenches doing work that uh, we don't really know about and learning about them uh, is really fascinating. So, Pat is one of those guys. And I'll tell you, it's interesting how our interview came about. So we had our, our 100th uh, episode and, and live stream, and I went on to the email list, and I asked uh, one of our guests for a letter, and uh, they gave me P, and so I found randomly, I was like, okay, Pat Patton, found him on the list. So I got in touch with him and got him on the phone. I said, hey, um, uh, I've, I've got you a, a pair of headphones I'm going to send you. You won. And um, he's, you know, we started to talk. And after a bit of a conversation and uh, a few probing questions about what he does and uh, how long he's been doing it, I immediately thought, this guy has got to be on the show. And he he graciously agreed, of course, to uh, join us. So uh, very excited to have Pat Patton come on, coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Well, of course, we got the holidays coming up here. Uh, for everybody. So in uh, the month of December, you know, we will, of course, continue with our regular schedule. And uh, believe it or not, you know, each week you can count on a show being there for you. So even if you are uh, working or not, you'll have a, a working class audio podcast to count on. And you could save them up, of course, and uh, go back and, and listen to ones you may have missed. But uh, of course, the holidays is a great time to catch up on your WCA. So be sure and do that. And of course, I want to give a shout out to uh, listeners around the world. I've been uh, taking a look at uh, the analytics of the show, just seeing like, where are people listening? And uh, yeah, I want to say hello to our friends in Russia. I want to say hello to our friends in the UK, Ireland, China, uh, all over the world. People are listening and uh, hope you're enjoying it. Our concentration, of course, of, of mostly people in the US, I know, is... Um, is one perspective. And of course, we'd like to get some other perspectives. We definitely would like to reach out to uh, those of you in other countries. So uh, I will be on the hunt in 2017 for uh, engineers to speak to in other countries because we do want to expand beyond the United States. We can't just com completely do the United States all the time. Be great to to speak with you. So if, uh, if you have somebody you recommend, of course, feel free to post it on the uh, Facebook page. That way it's it's in broad view of everybody, and we can all check out who uh, you're suggesting or referring to. So, yeah, that'd be great. Send me some suggestions of some uh, people outside of the United States that we could have a chat with. Any country, I'm just uh, would love to would love to chat with those working working audio in the trenches, whether it's game sound, film sound, uh, you know, any kind of uh, record making, any kind of uh, corporate AV, anything like that. Looking for those who are working and making a living. Or trying to make a living, as we all are. So, and speaking of making a living, at least uh, once we once we get past the holidays, of course, there's always the uh, the inevitable uh, next phase of business, which is you know taxes coming right around the corner. And in the United States, uh, I don't know how it is for you for you all outside of the United States, but here in the United States, it's always you know April creeps up on us, and um, taxes are due, and it can be a very stressful time for some of us. Here's a scenario that happens. Um, we do our, some people do their own taxes. Some people go to an accountant and have their taxes done. The thing that really is not too fun is when you hear back that you owe money to the IRS. And that's when it can be, you know, a moment of panic because you thought, well, you know, I, I took all the money that I made and I put it back into my business, or I took all the money I made and I, you know, I lived off of it. I didn't have 
money left over, you know, really that I could allocate to the IRS. And I have been in this position numerous times over the years as a freelancer. And, you know, it can be a panicky moment. So my suggestion is this, and I'm not a tax attorney. This is just, you know, my opinion on an audio podcast. So of course you need to run this by anybody that uh, is your uh, accountant or, you know, maybe a, a tax lawyer or whatever. My suggestion is this. Most people panic when they get an IRS bill. Let's say you, let's keep it simple. Let's say you owe a thousand bucks. Maybe it's more. <laughs> so let's say you owe a thousand bucks. The thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to just ignore it. If you can, you know, write a check for a thousand bucks, of course, you do it and you send it off. But some people are not in that position. Some people are really living check to check. And it's uh, it's very difficult. So uh, some people just tend to ignore it. And that, of course, can get you in a whole bunch of trouble. And you don't want to do that. So my advice uh, of what I have done in the past that's worked really, really well is I get the bill. And immediately, if I cannot pay it off, and I assure you that the bills have been bigger than a thousand bucks, I call the IRS and just uh, get an agent on the phone and you push the buttons in the phone tree to uh, get yourself to an agent so you can make a payment plan. And, you know, you just explain, hey, uh, got a bill, want to make a range for a payment plan. What can we work out? Um, this is what I can afford per month. And I find that uh, policy of engagement of calling the IRS and talking to them and making a payment plan, getting something, you know, organized. Uh, is the best policy because uh, then if you're paying and you stick to a schedule there, it's much better for you. And then the IRS doesn't want to come after you. If you if you communicate with them, that's key. If you avoid them, they will, of course, you know, come after you in whatever ways they do, garnish your wages or intercept funds that may be coming to you. Um, so that's something that you want to consider doing. Now, that's when you're dealing with the aftermath of making some money. Now, during the year, uh, you know, people, of course, talk about, you know, quarterly taxes all the time. They always say, well, you know, you're supposed to pay your quarterly taxes. You know, every time you get a, a, a check from somebody, you take some money and you set it aside. Well, I don't know about you all, but that hardly has ever worked for me because inevitably, you know, in one month is good. The next month is not so good. And that money is sitting there in an account. And, you know, I've done stupid things like spend that money on gear and uh, or spent that money, you know, unnecessarily on something that it shouldn't have been spent on. So what I, and I'll give credit to the last agent that I spoke to at the IRS. She said, you know, I know the whole quarterly tax thing is kind of a pain and, and can sometimes lead to these situations where you're spending that money. She was suggesting to me, she said, you know, every time you get a check, you should uh, just take a percentage of that check and make a payment. And so that's exactly what I've done. So every time I get a check uh, in my browser, I have a bookmark for the IRS and I go there and I just make a estimated, you know, uh, payment toward next year's taxes. And generally, you know, uh, I've been doing 20%, you know, maybe I should do 30. I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm just trying to give uh, an amount, a consistent amount so that when I get to the end of the year, and we do the taxes, if I owe something, it's definitely not going to be as much as if I had not paid throughout the year and, you know, quite possibly could get some money back depending on, you know, the scenario. So just, you know, words of advice from somebody who has definitely goofed it up in the past and um, now kind of, you know, I have the way I do it. So every time somebody writes me a check, you know, 20% right off the top goes right to there. And then, of course, I do a thing where I uh, allocate the remaining parts of it to whether it's, you know, an emergency cash fund, retirement, putting money in, you know, in, a, in a, my uh, retirement account. And, um, yeah, all these different things, whether and also paying off credit cards, any kind of debt, uh, trying to wipe that out. So we could do a whole show on just, you know, financial matters for the freelancer. Uh, we won't go into that today, but I just, I wanted to bring the IRS thing up because it's uh, something that, you know, I have it on my calendar, you know, got to pay the IRS this month for, you know, money I owed from last year. And then every time I get that check in, I, I make sure and pay a percentage so I don't get in that position again. So uh, yeah, tax advice. 
on the Working Class Audio podcast. If you want to call it advice, tax suggestions. There we go. Not necessarily advice, but suggestions. So there it is. Um, well, that's it. Let's stop talking about taxes and let's talk about career and uh, working and doing stuff with Pat Patton here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being on the show. Oh, and my pleasure. I've done a couple things. I've actually sat here and scoured your your resume here, and that's a whole talking point unto itself. <laughs> a checkered past. <laughs> I also was uh, looking at just, you know, the information on LaGrange, Georgia. Not to be confused with LaGrange, Texas, is in the ZZ Top song. The ir- irony there is that, um, oh, guitar player, ZZ Top guitar player, mother-in-law, I believe it is, lives here. So he shows up a couple of blocks down at the, the local library and parks his tour bus when they come visit. And we bump in occasionally to them in the, in the Kroger here. So, <laughs> so yeah, not to be confused with Grange, Texas. And we finally refer to it as, or we do in, in my world, is L.A. Grange, you know, the epicenter of the music world. <laughs> Absolutely not true. I looked at Google Maps to look at uh, where LaGrange sits. And it's what's interesting is, you know, the scale comes into question here. But I mean, you're first of all, you're really close to Montgomery, Alabama, Atlanta, Georgia, a little further away from Athens and Augusta, Macon, Georgia, a little bit of a drive up to Nashville. You're kind of in this, I don't know, just where the Google teardrop drops the the point there. I'm just looking around going, wow. In a like a short like maybe like a day, you could be in multiple locations. Yeah, we're ninety miles from Montgomery and probably an hour south uh, southwest of Atlanta. Forty five minutes north, forty minutes north of Columbus, Georgia. Ninety minutes east or ninety minutes west of Macon. So yeah, it's you can get pretty pretty much around anytime anywhere. And then I also was looking at the cost of living, cost of buying a house there. Wow, you can buy a house for. Like Nothing. under a hundred thousand dollars, you can, and a pretty good one, yeah. And and you know now, we are evolving from textile manufacturing to higher industry, but mainly noted now for uh, Kia, North American car manufacturing is is between here. It's in it's in Troop County, which is in Lagrange. Lagrange is in Troop County, but it's actually in West Point, which is about twelve fifteen minutes west of here, hmm. on the Alabama line. That obviously has a big impact on Lagrange. Huge. It's employment base of approaching ten thousand, with wow. with uh, suppliers that are located there. So it's it's probably been one of the things that has saved the textile business because we were, you know, um, at one point we had three companies that did walk off walk on mats, like you see in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. We had the number one, two, and three largest in the world were located here manufacturers. Those mats that people stand on to keep comfortable. Well, or to, you know, walk in a grocery store and not slip. And so So, the world's largest carpet tile manufacturer here, Interface, who really made our business back in the day when we were doing, um, you know, audio, video, multimedia production. We, we kept, we kept, we kept 12 people busy with the money just from that one company. My wife's from from Michigan, so I'm pretty well aware that you may have a car manufacturer, but it extends beyond that. Absolutely. there's so many other vendors that supply that car manufacturer with the most obscure of parts that you never would think of. Yep. And that can have a direct effect on the economy of that town or that surrounding area. Walmart distribution center here. And so we we have an intersection of I-85 and I-185 and... So yeah. that's um, big distribution. And Georgia in general has been very successful of late with attracting industry for the, for the very same things that you said, you know, cost of living, buying a $100,000 home, roads, trucks, a lot, of, a lot of labor. And the film industry in Georgia is thriving. I mean, literally, we're probably third in the country of shooting major motion picture films now. Interesting. It tax tax incentives and also um, just the the topography. You know, from within three hours, you can be on the coast to the mountains to the to the woods. Yeah, 
Um, I know that in California, when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor and as, as a person who came from Hollywood, I think he was responsible for a tax incentive to that, that affected post-production. I think typically our, our tax rate is when you buy, say, a microphone, it's about, I think it's eight, eight and a half percent, if I'm right, might not be exact. And I think if you use this, this tax incentive and claim it for post-production use, the tax rate drops to uh, like 5%, yeah. I think. Or, may, or Yeah. We're going through something similar in the audio world here. It, to date, it's just been for motion pictures that are shooting for, I think, with budgets over $5 million. But um, they're looking at ways to, to for it to impact uh, the record market, particularly, I mean, Atlanta, huge hip-hop market in Atlanta. So, you know, there, there are a lot of records that are being made there that might be, more might be made if there was some tax incentive for them to be made. And, you know, there's it, an argument good and bad for that. So, mm-hmm. Am I correct? If, if I look at your resume, it seems to start out in Athens. Are you from Athens? No, I'm actually from here. And oh, okay. I mean, I graduated high school here in LaGrange. And, you know, like so many of us that are, you know, late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, and I'm 60, um, that fateful day in February 1964, when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan, I think it's 64, maybe 63. I, I've got my years wrong. But, um, I mean, that was that moment turned my life. And so I began playing guitar badly and, um, realized that I needed to find something else. So I wound up on keyboards and, you know, Farfisa organ, Vox Continental, and then, um, uh, my dad <clears throat> realized that I, you know, I was playing in bands. That's what I wanted to do. And he said, you know, if I'll help you get a Hammond B3 because that will make you enough money to buy a car and pay for school and do all the things that you need to do. Well, he was right. I mean, I never was lacking for a band because I had a Hammond and some Leslie's and a Rhodes and Mini Moog and all the, the tools that bands wanted. And I was a probably an average, maybe slightly a better than average keyboard player. Mm-hmm. But um, it was right here in LaGrange, and I I was that high school kid that played with all the college bands. And, um, you know, my Fridays in high school were spent checking out first thing in the morning so that I could go gig that weekend. And my assistant principal, I would meet with him every Friday morning. He'd ask me where I was going. I would tell him. He would ask me, if how are your grades? And I said, I'm on the honor roll. And he said, well, we'll see you Monday. And that's how I spent my high school years in LaGrange, Georgia. Obviously, you can't do that anymore. And then I went to, right out of high school, I went to Athens. I went to the University of Georgia and, um, you know, tried to find my way there. And that was just a few years before, you know, everybody hit REM and the B-52s and, and had hindsight, you know, I would have been much smarter perhaps to have stayed in Athens, you know, but uh-huh. you can't, you can't second guess. I, I can, I can tell you lots of second guesses that I should have done. You know, <laughs> So that was, you, you got out of uh, university of Georgia in 77. Yeah. And okay. I left there because I had an opportunity to go into a little uh, partnership in a, a retail music store right here again in LaGrange. You know, we were selling Les Pauls and Stratocasters and Fender amps and PA systems and Kawhi pianos. I learned after a few years that I was the last one in and the first one out that a little small mom and pop music store in a small community, that's not going to feed three families. So during that time, I'd gotten interested in recording. I had a Tascam four track uh, machine and bought a DBX 165 and a couple of microphones and my band and buddies would show up at the house and, you know, we would try to figure out how to work this technology. And so, um, by then I was, was married actually twice and, uh, had a couple of kids and another one on the way. Mm-hmm. I left the music store and went to Chillicothe, Ohio to the recording workshop. I think, you know, a few weeks ago or months ago on your show, David Barbie was on and David's yeah. from Athens and we're friends and he's a, a uh, work recording workshop grad, and I r- totally agree with him. And it's a great experience for that six 
or so weeks that you go, you're immersed in it. Oh yeah, and you this learn is what the one. I, yeah, I love that story of of him talking about um, going there and getting kind of just like a, it was like a learning learning really fast and not having an extended program that would cost an arm and a leg over the course of time. Very modest. And I mean, I was in a room, uh, it was probably the size of a control room, except it was a cabin with five other guys. And we rotated schedules. Three of us were doing days, three of us were doing nights. So that, that way you could get in and out of that one shower that we're all sharing, <laughs> you know, along with a hundred others. Uh, and it was just an incredible experience. And Jim Rosebrook, the, the director, was there then. He's still there now. We stay in touch. Uh, but just a, it's a great program. Hmm. You know, to to get people 24 hours a day thinking, living, breathing, experiencing what this crazy recording industry that we all love and can't get away from is all about. And that was in 1983. 83, summer of 83. And they're still going. Still going, yeah. And I wonder how they compare to like a modern day school. I've seen some examples or, or heard stories of schools that... I just shake my head and think they seem to really not be there serving the student well, but you're the second person, obviously, that's talked about this this place, the recording workshop. I'd love to have a chat with them to see what their philosophy well, is. Well, I'm sure that Jim would just be happy to have a conversation with you about yeah. it. You, you know, and I think Blackbird, uh, while I don't know about what Blackbird's day-to-day program is with their new offering, but I think it's sort of a similar thing. I mean, I kind of compare, and, and this is my opinion, I could be 100, 180 degrees wrong, but Blackbird to me feels like Berkeley College of Music did back in the early days. You know, the young jazz guns would go to Berkeley mm-hmm. and Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea or whoever would watch those guys for a year and then hire them and they'd go on the road. And that was your degree from Berkeley. Nobody ever finished Berkeley. They just went there to get the gig, you know. I sort of think Blackbird might be like that, that you go there and you're involving yourself with so many great people, you know, great producers, great engineers, great talent. And if you've got the goods, you're going to leave there with a job, you know, in, in six months. And, and, um, Chris Mara at Welcome to 1979 in Nashville. Same kind of thing. You know, he has these weekend retreats and tape camp and vinyl camp. And, you know, for a young up-and-coming engineer, and and I mentor a lot of them. Not a lot. I mentor several. I've got some. I've got one 20-year-old that is just, he has the goods. He knows knows signal flow inside and out. He's just learns it, reads it, applies it. Uh, He's taking electronics, so he's soldering and, and, and knows that side of the equation. And, you know, uh, I think you, you take one a kid like that and you go and spend a weekend or spend six weeks or spend six months, depending on the program you go to, I think you're going to get your a pretty darn good education. I'll just say this as a parting thought on Blackbird. Uh, I can't say enough good things about Mark Rubel. Uh, who runs, who's one of the people who runs the program there. Mark is, Mark's a dear friend and, smart guy and probably one of the nicest people in the world of recording one could ever hope to meet. Just a genuine soul, really good guy. Well, I, I follow them and, and, you know, read their blogs and I think, I think they're on to something. Most definitely. Yeah. Well, so your experience there, what did you walk away with at, at, at the recording workshop? Well, it, it validated me. I mean, I, I went up there thinking, all right, is this really something that I can do and, and, and it can stick? And I went through that six weeks and I graduated at pretty high in the class. I, I won't say top of the class, but, but top of the class. <laughs> and, uh, and Jim, within a couple of weeks after I left, I got a call and from Jim and he said, hey, um, look, Sly Stone's people are looking for an engineer give them a call. Well, I called and, uh, you'll appreciate this baby. Um, we went back and forth on price. And again, I, you know, this time I have children that I'm supporting and they offered me $900 a month, not a week, a month. 
And I said, I need a thousand because I got to move. I got to move from Georgia. Well, we, we, we could not come to terms on a hundred dollars a month. So I called Jim back and I said, um, man, it's just not going to work out. You got anybody else? And he said, well, Barry Beckett called and they're looking for an assistant for, uh, in, over in Muscle Shoals. Can you make it over there? Well, Muscle Shoals is a hike. It's four, four and a half hours from here. But I said, yeah. And that was back in the day when Muscle Shoals was sort of transitioning, if you will, to Nashville and other places. I mean, now it's really hot again. You know, everybody's wanting to go back to Muscle Shoals and, and do their thing. And so, um, you know, I was over there back and forth doing some, some assisting and followed Barry to Nashville and did some assisting. And, but that was in the mid-80s. Nobody was hiring a staff guy anymore. Hmm. So it was all, you were, everybody was trying to figure out how to freelance. And again, freelancing, trying to keep a family together in the day that it, you stopped and made a pay telephone call home, you know, you didn't have cell phones. It was not really conducive to, to family life and keeping a marriage together and, and whatnot, you know, and uh, my then wife was from Memphis. And so I went up to Ardent and tried to get a gig and they weren't hiring. And then, um, I applied for a job in, in uh, Atlanta at Doppler. Doppler just closed recently after good grief. I can't, I, I don't know, 40 years maybe. Mm. It was a great studio, lots of rooms. And, you know, I think it was just time for for Bill and, and Joe to to retire and enjoy life. Uh, I don't know why they, re- I'm, I speculate perhaps it was a real estate deal because they were in the epicenter of, and, and I'm sure somebody's going to build a huge complex and, and hopefully they walked away with a lot of cash. But I went to that interview with Bill. And so here we are, you know, 1984 by this time. And and uh, I didn't get the gig because, I, yeah, I had a certificate from the recording workshop. And I, I knew that part of it. But they were a commercial production facility. And I lost the gig to a, the same credential guy who had an English degree, thinking that, well, he can edit script maybe better than. And so... For all of these years, every time I see Bill, I always remind him that he didn't hire me. And we, you know, but anyway, to your back to your question, it validated that this is what I wanted to do. And so next is you got to figure out how to do it, you know. And so I made the leap and worked with Steve Durr, great studio designer in Nashville. And Steve helped me build out this little small intimate control room and ISO room that I built in 1987. So now we're almost, we're 29 years in. And, in, uh, and this is the room you're in. This is talk, the right room now. I'm in right now. Okay. Yeah. And it, you know, then it had an AMET console in it and a 16 track tape machine, you know? Okay. So now we're going to do all the music that's, that's ever been made in the world out of it. And we did a lot of music. But what we learned, or what I learned, was that the real revenue in our community was from corporate clients. So I spent a lot of time doing corporate voiceover work. I've leaned over a quarter-inch tape machine with a razor blade and edited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of hours of narrative. I was really good with a razor blade, you know. And then um, um, I, I figured out that, well you know, we could probably get a lot more business if we got the job. And that meant we had to have video. So I tried, I hired a guy, we built out a video department. So we, we controlled the, the decision of the music because we had the video assignment, (laughs) you know, and along with that, I had some guys here locally, actually Lee Johnson, who is at LaGrange college still today, an incredible classical music composer. Uh, he's probably most famously known for his interpretations of the Grateful Dead's work. Uh, from a few years ago, he did a project called Dead Symphony that has been played, I mean, all over the world by symphonies, and it, it the record sold very well. So he would come over here in this, my little room, he would show up about three o'clock in the morning, and he would compose to the concept of the corporate industrial projects that we were doing. Mm-hmm. And at six, I would come down and we would mix from six to nine. And then he went to LaGrange College to start, to restart a music program there. And they built some studios that were designed off of my room. 
And fast forward to this year, they have just opened an incredible new studio that is large enough to accommodate easily a 40-piece orchestra. And they have a, quite a, a good uh, commercial music, creative music technologies program is what they call it. And uh, so we stay closely connected. But, I mean, we, we made a lot of music through those years doing mill tours and sales presentation support. And you just made your way. And we had fun making rock and roll, but rock and roll wasn't paying the, the payroll. It was right. the corporate work that was paying the payroll. I'm always I'm fascinated, and I, I, I haven't talked about ecosystems in some time on the show, but I go back to it, and the ecosystem in your area, it seems to be comprised. Of, I mean, you could look at the, the, the car factory and uh, the textile work and the college, and all of these elements contribute to the possibility of having uh, recording or audio work available to one. To, oh, a, to a person. Absolutely. I mean, 40 minutes south of here is Columbus, Georgia, and Columbus is the home of Columbus State University. They have a really nice uh, audio technology program, and um, right up the street from that is a studio that I worked in for a couple of years and tried to do some um, turnaround work for them. They had a uh, they had a, a partner in who was who was fired that had done some real damage to clients, you know, just didn't treat them right. And so I went down for a few years to try to fix that. And and candidly, that that ecosystem at Columbus State and and this in this the studio called the Loft is um, how I wound up in mastering. I mean, if if we go back in time a little bit, back into the '90s when our then commercial sight and sound company. Uh, was doing audio and video and multimedia work. Well, I found myself running a company as opposed to doing the audio work. And so I'd hired a guy as an engineer here. Uh, his name is Paul Hammock. And Paul is the technical director at LaGrange College today. And he took us from tape to Pro Tools. And then, you know, the uh, the Columbus thing, uh, I, was on, I was at the loft and was on a committee that hired Matt McCabe who is now the runs their audio technology program for for CSU? Through all of those connections, are where I met regional engineers, and you know, fast forward to 2010, 11, and when I made the decision to to reinvent my little space into a mastering suite, the only reason I did it was because I knew all the people in the region. They were all working in the box. They all wanted analog sounds. I know that world. I grew up in that world. So I pulled some old gear and bought a bunch of new old gear and, and um, put an analog mastering chain in place. And I am very fortunate that all of these producers and engineers around the region that I've met over the years are kind enough to send their work to me. And it's, it's, just, a, it's just 30 years worth of building relationships in a region that's not really known for its you know, music making. Although Chips Moman, arguably one of the most famous record producers in history, who died recently, was uh, was is was from here and re retired here. And I mean, he he had studios in Memphis that still today hold the record for the for the most number one or most Billboard charted number one records for, in his, in all history. Were all cut out of Chips' place in Memphis. So does your business, your mastering business, which I believe is called Jam Good? Jam Good Mastering, yep. We have an indie, indie record label called Jam Mates, and the mastering business is Jam Good. Your business of, of Jam Good Mastering is, is it primarily word of mouth? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done some, some postcards and we've done some email, you know, notices. But at the end of the day, that's really where the business comes from. You know, is if you satisfy a client, then they tell somebody and they call and you do that work and you satisfy them. And it would be interesting if you would ask that question to everybody that you have on to see if 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 they do anything other than word of mouth. And I, but I would bet you that ninety percent of it or better is is all word of mouth. Some people I've asked that too, and that and that usually is the answer, which is interesting. And it kind of goes back to also your talking about uh, relationship building. I mean, you have spent a career, not only relationship building, but you've worked in 
in a lot of different areas within the, the confines of music. You know, you've, you know, you've run a company, you've worked at a mom and pop music store, you, you're a keyboard player, and you have all these different elements on your resume that I look at it and I go, wow, you know, this, this guy really... That guy must be not be good at anything. <laughs> no, no. No, it's interesting. I, I see it and I think that's a person who has experience in all these different areas. And I think that that is important because I think sometimes if we get too singular, you know, we don't have any perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, we haven't gotten to talking about my my new profession, uh, halftime profession, in, is, as a teacher teaching two classes of sound recording and next semester teaching sound recording two and the business of music. But I tell my kids, and I have 43 students currently, the, the patent philosophy in the music world and, and really in life is threefold. It's um, you get out in direct proportion to what you put in, show up on time, and don't be a blank. Everybody knows what the word you can put in the blank but don't be one. Mm -hmm. And if you can do those things in our industry, you're going to make a lot of friends. I mean, everybody expects you to be able to know how to do the stuff, mm -hmm. but they want to work with people that they have fun with, you know, and that, that know that they can count on and know that when they call, you pick up the phone or know that when you say, you know, I'm going to have it done on Monday afternoon, that it's going to be done Monday afternoon. You know, and, it, and, if, and if you get off track, then let them know Sunday that, hey, I'm, I'm running a little behind. It'll be Tuesday. You know, reset that expectation. But, yeah, I mean, and it's a small community. I mean, and it's getting smaller with Skype that we're on right now and, and um, you know, the Internet. I mean, everybody is knowing everybody in our world a lot more. But in our region, we make, living off, make a living off of it by knowing people. And, and, and if, we screw, if I screw up. It doesn't take long, you know, for the word to get <laughs> Everybody's around. Everybody's going to know. Hope you're enjoying our interview here with Mr. Pat Patton of LaGrange, Georgia. We're going to take a sponsor break with our friends at Audio-Technica for a bit. You might notice currently on the uh, Working Class Audio website, we do have a banner up for the ATM350A microphone system. You know, it's a great cardioid condenser instrument microphone that Audio-Technica is selling. And... The really cool thing about this, beyond the fact that it sounds great and as in typical Audio-Technica fashion can handle extreme SPLs, it's got a pretty crazy system that you can use depending on, you know, your mounting needs. So whether it's drums or saxophone or piano, that's where this thing is really extra flexible. Make sure to head over to audio-technica.com and check it out. There's a whole series of the different mounts that you can get that help you you know, get the mic where you want it to be. One of my favorite things is uh, regarding the drum mount. So, you know, typically in situations where you want to have a clip-on drum mount, but, you know, the drums stay where they're going to be at. And then, like, say in a, uh, you know, house of worship type situation, you might want to have the drums up all the time, but you want to pack the microphones up at night. But in most typical situations, you've got to take the whole thing off and pack it up, and it's a big pain. This way with the, uh, the ATM 358, uh, mounting system for drums, you can leave the mount and just take the, the gooseneck and the mic. And then when you come back to the drum kit, all you got to do is plop the, the gooseneck mount right into the clip and you're back up and running. You don't have to readjust back on the drum kit all the different mics. So they have a lot of, a lot of flexible options here. They do have a magnetic mount for a piano, believe it or not, which I think is really cool. They got you covered on piano mounting, drum mounting, woodwinds, all kinds of different situations. So you might want to check that out. So it's, it's the banner that's currently up there. Have a click on it. Uh, check it out and see what you think. U.S. price is uh, anywhere from uh, $299 to $350. Uh, of course, that depends on what you're going to need. Shop around, of course, on the internet and see what you can find or go to your local pro audio dealer and ask what they can do for you. So that's it. The um, Yeah, the ATM350A from Audio-Technica. Well, that's it. Let's get back into our conversation in LaGrange, Georgia with Pat Patton here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. <laughs> What's the population of LaGrange? LaGrange is about 30,000, and Troop County is probably um, a little over 50,000, you know. And But again, we, you know, we're an hour from Atlanta, and so with, within our region, there, there are a lot of folks. But yeah, I mean, you can make a living in a community of 30,000 people 
if you're not a blank. Yeah. But there's also, there's a lot of factors that go into your survival. Obviously, we talked earlier about LaGrange's cost of living. Very important. Because really, I mean, that's that's the key, I think, in audio, because it's so easy to, um, with these with the fluctuations in the business, to, if you... If your overhead is just too high, it's hard to survive. Well, you know, when I opened this little studio, I easily got 90 bucks an hour in LaGrange, Georgia. Wow. I would venture to say that rooms around here now are very lucky to get 35 to 45, you know. And in addition to that, and, and, and David referenced this on, in, on your program, you can, the technology is so darn cheap now. I mean, when, when I invested, I mean, my first round of investment with a console and tape machines and was north of a hundred thousand bucks in 1987. And when we got into multimedia in our little company, we were doing compact disc interactive projects then. And we were one of the first companies in the world to do a CDI project with full screen, full motion video. And that was in the early nineties. Our CDI burner was 10 grand. Wow. And the discs that we burned to it were 15 bucks a piece, and you were lucky to get one or two out of a batch of 10. So those were high hurdles to, to overcome back in that time. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, you have everything that you can imagine at your fingertips about helping you learn how to be a better engineer. You, have, you can buy Pro Tools for almost nothing or any other DAW for almost nothing. You know, good grief that the Universal Audio uh, Apollo with its plugins is phenomenal for the money, you know. So you can just stay connected and and learn a lot and learn quickly if you put your mind to it. And I've sort of gotten off our question, but, you know, it's you can pretty much do it from any place anywhere now. You really can. So obviously there's very... Well, certainly no incentive now for you and your position to look at moving because well, you're, you in, know, a great, you're not in a great for, place. Yeah, not for me. I mean, mastering, I don't ever have attended sessions unless they're a set of someone who just wants to come up and hang out and have lunch and listen to the work that I've already done. You know, but there, there's nobody sitting watching my, over my shoulder attending. And I know that that's popular in some of the bigger markets, bigger artists. But I do 100% of the work alone and send them proofs or they might come up and do approvals. So, yeah, for mastering it works location-wise. But I do think a young up-and-comer needs to really think about location. The kind of music that they're into, if they're into record making, they need to they need to to make that effort and go see if they can fit in in that community. You know, I mean, like back to Athens when we were talking about the University of Georgia, it makes sense to me now that Athens has a new crop of students every year, you know? So for six years, there are students potentially at the University of Georgia, more students there than there are people in LaGrange. (laughs) There are a lot of musicians out of that group. There are a lot of studios. It is a music center you know, but you have to sort of like the kind of music that's being made there, you know, and Muscle Shoals back in the day was, Nashville has is, is gotten to where it's making all kind of different music, you know, Austin's got a, a kind of a, a market, New York, LA, Atlanta for, you know, for hip hop and, and other things, but I think it's important for you as a young kid to go and do that. Now, I didn't do that because I made a choice to stay and 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 try to salvage a family that, or a marriage that, that didn't work. But then I had kid responsibilities. My two youngest lived with me through high school. So my decisions were based on that mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, putting the, the music side first. But music never got out of me, and it's still in me, and I still, you know, I just do it differently than, say, some people. Are you comfortable in saying you've been able to make a living doing music-related things Absolutely. throughout the years. Yeah, yeah. And now, how do you find it now doing mastering? Like, is in terms of the sources of the work, is it all generally local, or do you have bleed over from, from Athens and Atlanta and, uh, what is it, Montgomery? M- Montgomery, Alabama? some Nashville. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, and it goes back to the Rolodex that you built over the years, you know, so, and, and people 
from those markets will send me some work and and they trust me to do the best that I can do and in, in for their work. But the bulk of it comes from our region, you know, and um, it, it's working pretty well for me, right? I mean, I, I opened the mastering suite in 2011. I was building it in, t- in 2010. It's grown exponentially every year. So that's a really good thing. But like I said, you know, um, it's, it's, I'm 60. So, and I try to put my clients first. So I don't want to, I know that my ears fatigue after four or five, six hours. Now, could I do morning, afternoon, and evening sessions like some mastering people? Probably not. I would be doing a disservice to my client if I did that. So my world is about a half a day, a good solid half a day mastering. And, and I've, I think I've given them the best that I can give and not go beyond that and experience any kind of burnout. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. You know, and, and they keep coming back, you know. And, you know, are they making hit records? No. But they're making good quality records and they're having fun doing it and they're proud of them. I mean, I work with some really good regional engineers and and a lot of times they say, well, why don't you take projects? Why don't you do, you've got a great ISO room. Why don't you do vocals? You got to run the vocals through the mastering chain. And and my response is, you know, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me. I do, I do mastering. You do tracking and mixing. You send me business. We're all happy. You know, right. I don't want to get in your world. I don't want you to get in my world. You know, <laughs> that's an interesting thing because, you know, I'm one of those people that I do. I do some mastering when called upon. I, I like your attitude about that. It's not a perspective I've I've thought about. And I'm seeing more and more recording engineers going into mastering. And I have mastering friends that go into recording. Yeah. Yeah. It's a I guess it all depends on what your ecosystem will support. That's exactly right. And then what you can support. I mean, for me, it, it, it takes a lot of energy to produce a project start to finish. There's a lot of time invested in the songs and the recording and the process and the artist development. And, and the same with tracking and mixing. You're a lot of hours on that song. For me, where I am in my life right now and in the ecosystem that I live in, I like to, to do classical today and like tomorrow, I'll be doing uh, eight country songs tomorrow and the next day. And um, next week, a hip hop, couple of hip hop singles. So it's, it's, you know, alt rock is, I do a lot of alternative rock. It's just something new and fresh every day. And I can get in and get out of it in a, in a four or six hours or, you know, eight or 10 hours split over two days. It, that just feels right for me where I am right now. You know, I don't get, I don't get too tired of it. I don't, I'm not too that emotionally invested in it. And I try to just bring out the best of what's there. I always like to ask this because I'm curious if it is part of your mindset these days is, um, as far as, uh, equipment and the balance of, you know, what you choose to buy, do you, do you continually seek new gear? Oh, I continue to want new gear, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, I, I've got, I use crane song converters and uh, uh, um, an Avocet controller and, you know, API EQ and compressor and Manly EQ and compressor and pendulum analog limiter. Got a pair of distressors. So, I mean, I'm pretty content with my chain. You know, would I like other stuff? Oh, we all like other stuff. You know, it's <laughs> oh, like yes, the, we do. It's like the Christmas catalog from Sears back in the '60s. You just drooled over it. You know, and I look at all the magazines that come in, and oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. But it doesn't really make sense for me to invest in something else unless there was a business reason to invest in it. You know, if I felt like that, I could pick up a, a long-term client by adding something else. Yeah then I would consider doing that. Right now, I'm pretty happy with it. I'm, I'm always in a constant state of analyzing the behaviors of not only myself and how I've dealt with audio and business over the years, but, you know, obviously through this show, I'm, I'm very keenly interested in, in other people's business and, and audio behaviors and how they, how they benefit or can hurt them. You know, from your perspective, uh, what do you think has worked for you over the years, what have you found success? You know, and it's a it's a broad question, of course, but curious what comes to your mind. Wow, you know, I can think of what hasn't worked quicker than I can think of what's worked. You well, know, tell me, tell me, tell me that. I'm well, curious. Uh, you know, uh, this is not audio related, but 
and when we got into the video business early on, our second camera was a $40,000 Sony Betacam. I still have it. It's worth nothing. So I've got a $40,000 paperweight, mm. you know? So I look at that and I'm reminded about that investment, you know, and, and, but then on the other side of it, it made me or made the company, I don't know, easily, easily four or $800,000. Okay. So then you look at $40,000 investment and it's worth nothing today, but it generated all that cash. Okay. That was a good business decision, you know? And now I think it's just better, better to, you can buy so much for so little, but I think it's probably more important. And I experience this in, in the classroom every afternoon because those kids are wanting this and wanting that. And they could, if, well, if they had this, they could do. And I said, you know, if you really just knew what to do with what you had, I think you could probably do what you wanted to do. So, you know, there's a lot of stock compressors and EQs that, that work just fine. You don't have to have this little boutique, that little boutique, you know. Not to say that, that great gear isn't important. It is, you know. And I can certainly, I'm all analog. I don't use any digital plugs. Occasionally a digital limiter. No digital EQ. I mean, it's all analog. So it's, to me, I'm handcrafting. And that means recalls. I've got a, rec I've got a stack of notebook paper, you know, that I, I take hand notes. And when, if, if I don't get it right, then I got, I've got to recall a session and tweak it, which is why I do three or four prints options that I can choose from and that my clients can choose from. Because sometimes I like one version and they like the other version better and that they win. It's their money. It's their, it's their project. I want to make them happy. So I'll do three or four options. And then because I know that I've got to recall it if I, if I get it, if I don't get it quite right. It's interesting when, when we're talking about equipment and of course, plugins fall in that category. It's almost like when we're spending cash versus putting, spending on credit, you know, we can't really see the money leaving our hands or there's, there's not that tangible thing when using a credit card. And I find myself and I have to watch myself because I'm aware of it, but I'll go hunting for plugins and, oh, that one's 50 bucks. I'll, I'll pick that up. That one's a hundred, but I'll pick that up. But if you're buying a piece of rack gear, it's a constant reminder because it's always there. And it's, it's, I, I'm sure you see the parallel I'm drawing between. Totally. And the price of plugs is going not north. It's going south. You get, they're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But my rack, I can, I'll guarantee you that I could sell it today for more than I bought it for, you know, so it's appreciating in value. And not that long ago, I, I had over in the corner, uh, a Neumann U87 that I bought brand new in 1987 and a pair of NS10s that I bought brand new in 1987. And after I stared at them for the last seven years, never being used, I finally parted with them, you know, and the Neumann generated about three times as much as what I paid for it. And the NS10s I sold for more than I paid for, for them. So, you know, this may change, but hardware holds its value. Now that said, so, yeah. I mean, I sold a lot of gear back in the nineties that I, and gave away a lot of gear that I wish I hadn't because, you know, consoles and outboard gears, you know, it's, it's come back in fashion, but, um, you know, you do with, I mean, I had a Lex, Lexicon 480L back in the day that, um, I think I sold it for 5,000 bucks. I think I paid 8,000 for it. And I think they're still commanding about $5,000, you know? Yeah, it is interesting to peruse the gear, the, the gear market, the used gear market online from a variety of sources. And it's always fascinating to me what is just plummeted in value and what continues to be like, oh, man, those are still costing that much. You know? Yeah. But so, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I think about that when when purchasing things, you know, when when I set this, I thought long and hard about the, my mastering chain when I set it up mm -hmm. and, and compared it to the room size. My room is small. So I'm using Focal monitors, but would I want bigger, better monitors? Yeah, but I don't really have the space for them. And, and I think, I think over by and large, I've made a pretty smart investment in the, in the mastering chain that I have. It's generated. I mean, if you think about how much I have in it versus how much it's generated over the last six years, it's a darn good investment. And it's still, and today it's still worth what it was worth then, if not more. 
So. And here, here's something I didn't ask you that I just want to clarify. So your mastering room, is it in your house? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. There, there was an, oh, I live in an old uh, 1920s-ish house uh, right by LaGrange College. And um, this is an old under-the-house drive that we dug out and and built out back in 87. Okay. So, yeah, I just literally walk upstairs and, you know, and wind down or walk downstairs and, or go up and have a coffee or have lunch and, you know. Now, that all changed this year when I started teaching in the afternoons. And my day was from 11 to 7, and now I'm in the studio really early, mm-hmm. 6 or 6.30, as early as I can get down in here, and then spend the afternoons in a classroom and then come back into the studio and do red book prep and, you know, recalls and things that I don't have to as critically listen to. So I get all my critical listening done, you know, early in the morning. Has your, ma- on the mastering side of things, has it switched uh, t- at all to mostly DDP delivery and yeah. less, okay, all. less CD delivery? Yeah, I mean, I will, I still, and I'm trying to figure out when to stop. I still give my clients two safety master hard copies, but a hundred percent of them, I upload DDP files to their designated manufacturer. Okay. And I'm doing more too with high res mastering. Oh, interesting. They're, they're buying into the concept. I mean, most mixes that I get are, you know, 24 bit, 48, 88, some 96. And, um, and I'm not one that masters at 2488 mm-hmm. Um I'll go ahead and then sample right down or dither down. I print two versions. I print a 16-bit 44.1 and I print a 24-bit 88.2 or whatever the mixing engineer mixed it at. And so uh, the, the high-res copy is more, you know, future-proof. I, I mean, I don't know how much longer CD is going to be a real deliverable platform and uh, i think it's just a function of bandwidth before we are streaming 24-bit and i mean it's certainly better quality you know you know in regards to your students this is kind of a recent thing for you i I take it yeah august this year okay i mean i it's i've known the program for a while right um and they have an incredible television and film department where about a hundred kids a day. It's a charter school, but it's fed mm-hmm. by three high schools in Coweta County. And um, so a hundred kids a day come and go through their television and, and film program. So, I mean, there's eighth graders that are doing really good quality editing. They have their own television show that they produce every week. It, it's really top notch. And they got a grant a few years ago for a bunch of, with a bunch of audio equipment, a lot of Pro Tools seats and some outboard gear, patch bay, all the cabling. But they'd never been really able to get it off the ground. And they had a teacher retire who's a great personal friend of mine. And she knew she was going to retire and ask if I would help come up with a course for, or for and it is, that course has become Essentials of Sound Recording. But I didn't know if I was going to get the job because I'm not a certified teacher. Mm. And uh, didn't even know if I wanted the job. But I helped put the course together. Over the, I guess last spring, they started doing formal interviews. And I said, well, I just got to tell you, I'm not a certified teacher. And they said, not a big deal that at our charter school, we respect industry, we would, we respect industry credentials the same as teaching experience. As a matter of fact, we would like to have industry people in. The guy that's running the the television and film program is a, uh, he's been there eight or nine years and he's a, 10 or 15-year veteran with Georgia Public Television. It's, it's just an incredible program. They have um, welding and uh, a, a German cert- international certificate welding program where sophomores come in, and by the time they're graduating seniors, they're making real money and are certified internationally as a welder. And so they want to do this same thing with recording. And um, so we, you know, we've got a little control room and an ISO room and the, the construction department there, I've given them uh, designs for some gobos and acoustic panels and clouds, and they're building them. And so we'll hang them in the room. And um, this is the first crop of kids, two classes doing Essentials of Sound Recording 1. 
You know, we've been doing frequency and wavelength and microphone types and um, polar patterns and um, signal flow, signal flow, signal flow, signal flow. And, uh, and, and a little signal flow. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're good enough as guitar players, some of them, and some of them as drummers and some of them as singers that they come together and form bands. And so we've got a recording team that records this group and a control room team that's, that's managing the patch bay and signal flow and the flow to, pro tools. And I got to tell you, it's pretty rewarding, you know. How old are these kids? Ninth to twelfth graders. Wow. So they're getting a sense of, is this really what I might be interested in doing? You know, and then they'll have to make a decision. Do I go, do I do it in college or do I go to a certificate program or do I just move somewhere and try to slug my way out with it? I mean, what part of it's rewarding for for you? I mean, some people teach kind of midway into their career or spend a lifetime teaching, but here you are, you've got all this experience <clears throat> to impart. What part of it is rewarding to you? I just like to see their eyes light up, you know? I mean, they come in and they say, most of them call me Mr. P. They come in and they'll say, Mr. P, we've been, I've been thinking about this, this kind of equipment, or I've been trying to figure out how to do this. And so you walk them through the process and then they're just beaming, you know? There's just something pretty special about that. Or they listen to music differently. You know, they've, the, the, like one project they've done this year is they had to, to research Grammy-nominated producers and do a research paper on them and then notate three artists that that producer has produced and then pick two songs from each of those artists and listen to and comment on those songs with engineer and producer years, ears. Most of them didn't realize that who the producer was and that they had been listening to that producer's work for all their life, you know? And then to listen to the song and have to think about what kind of, what's going on with the snare drum or what's going on with the vocal treatment or what's driving it, what, what's happening with the bass line that, that calls your attention to it, you know? That's pretty special, you know, when, when they start connecting all those dots. I think I'm envious because kids of that age are getting... In a, formal, in a formal education environment, they are getting a guided tour of the recording world, first of all, and they are going through that discovery that in, in that environment that many kids, by happenstance, myself or you or growing up, might have you know, started to look at record covers and go, oh, and connect the dots outside of this, this educational environment. But here they are in that environment being, you know, guided to say, let's look at these, these engineers. And I, I think it's fantastic what well, you're doing. And it's, and it's incredibly re rewarding, uh, or at least it has been. I'm only into it a few months, but I mean, we just, we're, we're just about finished the first semester. So, uh, you know, ask me in another five years, but, but so far, I mean, it, it really has been, they are, um, they're charged up about it and, uh, they're learning a whole lot, you know, half of the, half of the 43 are pursuing recording two. Uh, that'll be a lot tougher. But when they get done with recording two, if, the, if they, half of them are wanting to pursue recording two, and if they go through the recording two class, much tougher class, I, I would venture to say that they will be, have as much knowledge that they could go to the recording workshop program and graduate top of the class easy uh, or somewhere else, you know? And if, and if they take the, music business class, then they're going to learn about copyrights and royalty payments and uh, tour management and all the business-related opportunities that they, that maybe not as a musician or maybe not as an engineer or maybe not as a producer, that they would have an opportunity to, to work in this crazy business that we're in. Kids these days, the things that they're getting to learn, I'm so jealous. Oh, me too. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, <laughs> I mean, in my day, you, you listen to AM radio is, and you're playing in the band and you're trying to get the, the song lyrics. And so you get half of the lyrics written when it when the DJ spins that record. Then you got to wait around to the next rotation to, to say, OK, well, here it comes again. And we'll, you know, listen to those and transcribe those lyrics and hope you get them then. You know, it's a different world. Yeah. Well, I applaud you. You're, you're really, sounds like you're putting together a fantastic program for these kids. And that's, that's really awesome. You've really had a great, it's what, at least, and I could say this on, on paper because I'm sitting here looking at it. On paper, you've had a very uh, multifaceted career 
and now you're doing mastering and you're teaching and and you you definitely seem to continue to have the enthusiasm that I'm sure some of your kids have. Well, uh, yeah, I mean my school kids and and also my kids. I mean, uh, and I mean I have three three children. My oldest is married and is pursuing his doctorate at the University of Boulder or University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, he's a he's a composer. Uh, he had his got his master's in NYU and now he's out with the fellowship doing his doctorate music composition and his wife is a pursuing her doctorate is violin perform in violin performance. My daughter is a has a master's degree in um, in music education with a focus on vocal pedagogy and she's teaching uh, high schoolers chorus and and my youngest turned down a percussion style scholarship to pursue law enforcement and is now he was he's been a t- cop for 10 years and he's now uh, just picked up a homeland security job so you know the one common denominator that i told them was you know do what you want to do and i tell kids at school do what you want to do be if you, be but be passionate about it you know if you can't be passionate about it just then don't do it music has been everything to me I mean, I can't get enough of it. And I'm, you know, maybe in the wrong location, maybe in the right location, but it's been a, it's been a good ride. And I hope to have a lot more years left doing it. And, you know, I mean, I love, I love hands-on tactile console or, or turning knobs and pushing faders. But the reality is that the older you get, you don't know if your ears are going to last. And so to be able to transition and, and go into a classroom and share that information with a bunch of bright-eyed kids, I, it's a pretty good world, pretty good life. Well, technically you're still young because I've interviewed guys 10 and 20 years older than you that are still at it. Yeah. So, And I hope to be at it 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> My my personal goal is 105. That's what I'm. I'm You're going for 105. For. I'm going that's, for 105. That's a good number. Yeah, if I can get past that, then that's just you know gravy. Yeah. So, well, Pat, it's been a a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm I'm glad that uh we connected in the way that we did. Well, it's it was a fluke for sure. But <laughs> those are those opportunities that uh, for my side, for me anyway, I'm I'm appreciative of and. And I'm glad it, it worked out. I hope you feel the same. I feel great. This, is a, this has been a great interview. I, I've enjoyed speaking with you. Cool, man. Take care. Thanks, Stay in man. touch. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Pat Patton here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really, really enjoyable speaking with Pat. And uh, one more reason why I have to take a trip to the South. So thanks again, Pat. Appreciate the, appreciate the conversation. Uh, we are out of time. So let's say thanks to everybody. Of course, let's thank Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. Want to thank our sponsors, GearSluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And of course, I want to thank you all for listening. Appreciate it. Keep spreading the news about WCA. I appreciate it. And that's it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.